my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. This week, Sam and I cannot wait to introduce you to Julie Lifecott Haynes. Julie went from acting as the Dean of Freshmen at Stanford to writing the best-selling How to Raise an Adult. And now she's just released her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Please welcome Julie. You were the Dean of Freshmen at Stanford for over a decade. What is the number one mistake that you see parents making? 
basically thinking that their kids are helpless and incapable. So calling professors to talk to the professor about a grade we're unhappy with, air quotes, or wanting to get involved if there's a roommate dispute, you know, almost like the kid is still having a play date, except the kid is now 20. Here's another example. My son has been admitted to the study abroad program in pick a country, Berlin, Germany. And when's your parent orientation for study abroad? No. What? Because I can't send my child abroad. And look, let's not, we pointed out that I was at Stanford. This was not a Stanford situation. This was childhood had changed. Parenting had changed. Parents were coming to college with their kids, air quotes, whatever college or university their kid was going to, we were all seeing it. So when did parenting become this job or sport? I don't understand where the overparenting came from. A curious set of things were happening in the early to mid-1980s. Let me walk you back to that time. In no particular order, these five things happened that conspired to change childhood and parenting. Uh, Stranger Danger was born in 1983 with a terrifying made-for-TV movie that everybody saw in an era when there was no internet and all of your entertainment came through your television screen, (laughs) okay? Uh, And the movies and music. But everybody saw this TV show, 1983. The play date was born in 1984. Kids could no longer find playmates, play dates themselves. Parents had to arrange it, put it in the calendar, but then hover over it, manage it, make sure everyone was taking turns, getting along, doing enriching things. So free play ended. Um, We began the self-esteem movement. Let's give them a ribbon, a trophy, a certificate, an award just for being on the soccer team, not for necessarily being good at it. The only people who benefited from that, by the way, were the manufacturers of the ribbons and the trophies and the certificates and the awards. So we're making lots of money. Okay, but this was the perfect, great job. The beginning of that, like every little thing is acknowledged and given a certificate or an applause for number four. We started rolling into effect laws that said you have to wear seatbelts, you have to wear bike helmets, you have to have a car seat. Every single state in the mid 80s passed those laws, which saved lives. Absolutely 100 percent good and led to a mentality of we can entirely control our environment. We will bubble wrap our house. We will bubble wrap our child. We went from just make sure the kid doesn't can't access the cabinet that contains the poison to kill the insects to let's bubble wrap every corner. Let's put a little latch on every drawer because we wouldn't want them to have an ouch or an oops. And then fifth, academically, we got this sort of critical books called A Nation at Risk saying America's teenagers weren't faring very well vis-a-vis their international counterparts when it came to academic achievement. So we needed more testing and more teaching to the test. And so in the span of five years, we had play changing, how parents behaved on playgrounds and on in grocery stores and in malls vis-a-vis constantly hovering over kids in fear of a stranger from the sidelines of kids' activities, parents there for practice showing up and shouting how amazing they were. Homework was hovered over. Childhood changed. It just, that all happened in the mid-1980s. And the young people that have had the first play date were the first to come to college in the late 90s as a group with parents who couldn't let go. Kids first subjected to the first play date were the set whose parents came to college and behaved as helicopter parents in the college environment. And then why did it persist? Because it looks it looked like it works. That's why, you know, that's why it kept going. All of this help appears to work, right? I helped my kid prevent 
something, you know, a boo-boo from happening. I was there. I rescued. I handled. And so it looks like it works, which is why people do it, because the people who do it seem to have advantages and create advantages. And what we've only learned recently in the last eight, 10 years is it causes psychological harm to the kids because they don't develop a sense of agency or self-efficacy. And so they can't do things and their mental health is damaged. So how have we learned that? What, what has shown us that in the past eight or 10 years? Well, people in the field of psychology have conducted research and have studied situations and have correlated an overparenting style with a lack of agency in kids, greater um, uh, executive function trouble in kids. And the la- lack of self-efficacy leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression. Now, do you see this changing? I mean, is the pendulum swinging back to how it used to be because of all this research? Well, I see two things. I see some parents saying, yes, absolutely. I get it. In my town, I've seen overparented kids. In my family, I've seen overparented kids. When people see the effects, that's when they go, okay, fine. I, I understand. Wow. I did not mean to be setting those things in motion. I need to pull back. I need to focus on my kids developing their own skills rather than me pretending I can forever live their life for them. But let's face it, you know, just look at the news. Look at the admission scandal the last couple of years. There are a set of parents who have doubled down and have decided, nope, this kid is effectively my pet, my project. I will turn them into best in breed and um, deploying every resource they have monetarily um, in terms of their influence and their ability to take care of business and, and leading life for their kids. So I'm seeing sort of both. That leads us to your TED Talk, which I loved, and I think anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it should definitely watch it. But I was struck by the fact that you went to Stanford and Harvard Law School, yet you are telling people that the school you go to matters, you know, your children go to matters less than you might think. The first thing I'm going to say to that is folks who are concerned about this, they wouldn't be listening to me had I not gone to those schools. There is that embedded sort of, uh, I become an authority in the minds of some because I've been to those places. And I acknowledge that there there are a set of people who seem to believe that that's what matters. I don't believe that that's what matters. I have been an administrator in higher education and have a deep appreciation for the excellence offered at 200 different colleges and universities in this country. So I am a graduate of those places who can say, oh, hey, yeah, those places are great. They're just not the only great places, is my point. And why steer your kid's childhood toward a place that's denying 95% of all applicants so they feel like losers at a time of life when they should feel exhilarated? Let's widen our blinders and accept and embrace the fact that a terrific education is to be had at many, many, many schools, most of which are not rejecting everybody. It's funny. So I mentioned to my ninth grader that I was interviewing you and she said, oh, mom, will you just ask her for tips of how I can get into a good college? Yeah. (laughs) So what would you say to that? What would I say? Number one, let's talk about good college. There are 3,000 accredited four-year institutions in the United States. So the top 5% or 7.5% is between 150 and 225 schools. Okay, so be willing to take into consideration every school in that book you bought that's, you know, America's colleges. Like, you know, don't just focus on the top 20. Widen your blinders. Choosing a college isn't about choosing a pair of jeans or a soda. It's not about the brand name. It's about your fit and belonging where you go. So now let me flip the tables 
ninth grader and focus on you. What you've got to be figuring out over the course of high school is which subjects light me up? Which one or two subjects do I love and I really want to explore deeply and deal with the other stuff I'm required to do, but this is my stuff as opposed to I need to be great at everything and I need to do all the activities and all the sports and all the leadership to get into some school that requires that. No, forget that. This is the time to begin to cultivate your own self, to deeply inquire of yourself, what am I good at? What do I love? Not what does society value, but who am I? And then you're going to find a college that says, oh, hey, kid, we offer that thing that you're deeply engaged in and that you love. And we're impressed at what you've done with that at the high school level. Come do that further on our campus. That's the kind of match you're looking for. And it has nothing to do with the brand name of the place. What I've taken from what Julie just shared, which I really want to do better at at home, is like what lights you up? Because that's just such a great question and it's not loaded with any pressure. And I think that one of the things that that we've made the mistake about is where in the TED Talk you share like when your kid gets in the car, what was the best part of your day? It's not how that history test go, right? But like as parents and as goal-oriented people, we're like, how the history test go? Because we saw them studying for it last night and making themselves crazy over it. So it's part of, we all have to to change our behavior in my house, you know, and it starts with the parents. It does. And it starts with examining our own biases. Look, you've pointed out where I went to school. I met my husband also at Stanford. We were both undergrads. So I'm right there with you, having trodden that path. And then, you know, it, of course, our kids may think that that's the only acceptable path, particularly if we hype that path. So we have to do a much better job of, of coming clean. Hey, kid. It was so much easier to get into those schools than it is now, period. Okay? Yeah, we went there. But it's rather impossible to get into those places today because so many more kids are applying to so many more schools. So let's just, you know, they're there and they're great. But let's focus on the fact that there are so many other schools, which are also great. And you have to believe it or they won't believe you. You have to actually do the work. Look up colleges that change lives. Read about the honors colleges at big public universities that offer a tremendous education Okay, acknowledge the fact that the big brand name schools often don't teach well. How many professors did you know personally when you were an undergraduate if you were at an Ivy League school? Maybe you did. Maybe it wasn't until junior, senior year. At smaller liberal arts colleges, they get attention and mentoring from faculty from day one. And that's what turns out to be a predictor of success in life. You know, how well were you mentored wherever you went? Not did you go to a brand name, but did the teachers and professors there give a damn about you? That's what we need to be steering our kids toward with great confidence that those are where the great outcomes lay. And we have to make sure we're not saying you could go anywhere, but yet our entire house is filled with memorabilia of only one or two schools, like all the mugs, all the sweatshirts, all the stuff's like, right? Walk the walk and be delighted. Here's another way you can walk the walk. When someone in your kid's school decides to go to a state school, a smaller liberal arts college, a college air quotes, most people haven't heard of. You should light up and say, I'm so happy for them. I'm sure that's a great fit for them. Awesome. And you have to demonstrate that you believe it instead of like, oh, right. Just think about how your face lights up when someone's going to a brand name school. Oh, and then they're going, they're not going to a brand name school. You're like, oh, right. That kid is devastated when the adults in their lives can't seem to muster enthusiasm for the path they're on. We have to do better as parents at being delighted for every kid's outcomes. And in so doing, we demonstrate to kids younger coming up on the path in our own house that we truly do believe that it doesn't matter where you go, it matters who you are. 
This reminds me, it's, I mean, it's so interesting. I have a different perspective because I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I went to public school. My mom had paid her way through Ohio State. So had my dad. The Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. And my dad's parents had paid for him to go, but, you know, they had graduated. And my sister and I both went to Emory University in Atlanta, which was great. So anyway, this idea of choice, my, I remember in sixth grade, I won this national writing competition or state writing competition. I was invited to nationals, but I had a track meet. And my mom said, it's your choice. And I was 12 and I didn't really know what it went, but I chose the track meet. My mom was like, great. And like, I think of that now and I'm like, would I do that? Or would I say you're going to the writing competition with my kids? Do you have an intrinsic sense of which one mattered more today? Is that what you're saying? Because I don't see that there's anything wrong with choosing the track meet. Yeah. I, for me, I don't know. I think like if, if the academics is the thing, I don't know. It's hard. Like it's just hard as a parent to step back and let your child make all the choices. Well, and if we have this sense that every single choice narrows the possibilities for future, then we can obsess around, is this the right choice or is this the right choice? Oh no, I'm closing doors. We need to cut ourselves some slack and give ourselves a break, right? None of us can say which of those two was the right choice for that child what we ought to be saying is there are valid reasons to choose this, valid reasons to choose this, downfalls with this, downfalls with this. You can only do one. You got to pick. Pick one and live with it and go in the direction that that, you know, you might have become, you know, more likely to run and track in high school and then college because you did that. You might have gone on to be a, an award winning writer if you had done the other thing. You may be both. I, I don't, you know, we have to get out of this zero sum um, keep your options open because there's one possible option that's magnificent and we have to just constantly be waiting for signs from the universe like, okay, go, this is the one to pick. That's what's causing part of the anxiety because we're so hyped about, oh my gosh, you can't do your writing and your sport. What are we going to do? It's we, we Our kids are flipping out because we act like everything matters so much. I'm delighted your mom allowed you to choose that because a 12-year-old is capable of making that choice in furtherance of where do I want to go? The answer was the track meet. I think that's amazing. I think what's so interesting is to me that the really difficult question, and you just answered it, is was Amy's mom, should she have been involved in that decision or should she have left it up to Amy? And there's a another argument, which is like a 12-year-old doesn't understand the significance of a writing competition or the significance of this track meet. So as parents, it's our job to guide her. And the question is, at what age do you guide those things? And my own background is I was a very pressured child athlete. The reason I got into Harvard is because I was a tennis player. I was recruited by every school to play tennis. If I had not been pressured, I would never have been a ranked tennis player. And that decision had a lot of negatives, but a lot of positives for my life. And so what's been interesting is watching my own children as I know the way I parent makes it so that I've ensured I have no college athletes in my home because there is a degree of pressure and a degree of commitment it takes from parents to, in many ways, create a child athlete. So I think that in terms of pendulum parenting, I've gone the other way of like, no pressure, no pressure, because I had so much pressure. So where do you fall on all that? Well, I fall on the, I think I'm on the end of the pendulum you're on. And I'm going to say it this way. Our child is not a dog that we have entered in the Westminster Dog Show and are going for best in breed or best in class or best in show around. Our child is not a racehorse we've entered in the Kentucky Derby that we've bet on and we get return on investment if they win the Derby and then the Triple Crown. They're not animals. They're not puppets. They're not projects. 
They're not ours. They're not our property. They are human beings here to lead their one wild and precious life. And it is arrogant as hell for any one of us to steer them in a particular career or extracurricular direction. Let me pause and say I'm talking, I think, about families with relative means. I know that if you are poor or working class, you may have a sense of, I got to push my kid to get into a particular direction to lift them, to help them lift themselves and maybe the rest of us up to a more comfortable middle class place. I think that's a different set of challenges. That's not the one I'm speaking to here. Okay. I, the pressure that high achieving athletes have been put under, I mean, I want my kid to be a Jeremy Lin, not an Andre Agassi. Agassi was top in men's tennis for years and wrote a memoir about how freaking miserable he was. My heart breaks. Jeremy Lin was never to the NBA what Agassi was to tennis, but he loved every minute he played. And when he got his break and played for the Knicks for uh, some seasons, he had fans in the crowd. They made a documentary, Lin Sanity. You know, he loved it. It showed and he was good at it. That's what we want to be pushing our kids If we're pushing it all, it's pushing them toward what their own passions are, not toward what we need to be able to brag about at SoulCycle or on the golf course. So when does it start? It starts at birth with a respect that your job is to help this kid figure out who they are and what they're good at and use whatever resources you have and have access to to fan the flames of their own interest. We're not supposed to manufacture them to be something that is arrogant and it's harmful and it's painful to them and often results in estrangement between parents and kids one day. What's the thread between this and your new book, Adulting? Like, what's the thread there? Well, the first book was on we're harming kids, we should stop. The second is for young people, I'm rooting for you to be you. Go, get going. You know, it's the same message. It's just sort of the flip side. One was take away the harm. One was support those who might have been held back by over-involved parents. Not to assume everyone who reads my book had over-involved parents, but if you're struggling with activating your own adulthood, if you're stuck and you don't know that you can adult, often it's because you were over-managed. Somebody tied your shoes too long, bathed you too long, wiped your butt too long, cut your food too long, held your hand too long, talked to every teacher for you, talked to every coach for you. You never asked a grocery store clerk a question. You never filled out your own forms. Of course, you don't know how to adult because you've been denied systemically through your childhood of having the experiences that would have taught you how to be in those circumstances. So I am here just vociferously rooting for young adults to snatch their lives away from whomever is holding on to them and go lead that life. I am rooting for all of us to make it. And I have a particular soft spot in my heart for young people who are being treated like dogs on a leash, marched down the path of life by parents. And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. 
Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was your own childhood like? I am the child of a highly educated African-American father who was a physician. My Black grandfather was one of the first Black doctors in America. My white mother has a PhD, which she got when I was in college, so went back to school after raising me to get her own PhD. So I come from highly educated folks. I'm the youngest of six in a blended family. All of my siblings had gone to college, um, some to grad school. So for me, it was, you will go to college. It wasn't about where. It, they didn't tell me what to study, but I was punished if I didn't get all A's. And I chafed at that and I tried to rebel against it until I realized that I was only shooting myself in the foot. So I came from high expectations, folks, 
And I think, you know, some of that was problematic. It is important to teach kids to work hard, have a work ethic, keep trying, you know, pull yourself back up. All of those are important values. But when we condition our love on how well the child is doing, that is problematic. But my parents weren't the tiger type forcing me to be a brain surgeon or a tennis star. What I did was entirely up to me. And I appreciate that. The other thing is my mother has co-raised my children with me and my partner in order to afford to live in Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. She sold her house back east. We sold our house in California together. The sale of two houses bought one house in the right school district, air quotes, in Palo Alto. So my mother has been very much a part of our child rearing with our own kids who are now 21 and 19. And I've been watching the patterns my mother and I have around her micromanagement and control. I've been watching that show up in me in response to my mother. Now that I'm an adult, as I parent my own kids, um, it's really been a mind-blowingly wide eyes open kind of opportunity for me to figure out intentionally, no, how do I want to be today with my children? It does not have to be the way that I was raised. And I'm actively repatterning some of my overparenting tendencies with my 21-year-old and 19-year-old. How has your parenting changed over the course of the last 20 years? Well, I was this dean at Stanford, as you've said, freshman dean from 2002 to 2012. So my babies were born 99 and 01. So I've got tiny kids. I'm working with a generation older college students raised by other people. I'm seeing the encroachment of parents into the lives of these college students around academics and their personal life and solving problems, just sort of tearing my hair out, like as a Gen Xer going, why are these millennials letting their parents be so involved in their freedom and independence? They're college students. My God, what is going on? And I was railing against it. And I would give speeches on my campus at orientation every year, like these funny, loving, blunt speeches, like trust your kid, trust us. Now, please leave. It's college. They could be in the Marines, like go home, trust your kid. And then I began to appreciate Maybe they have to continue doing all this because they always have and they know the kid has never waken themselves up yet. So how are they going to start to wake themselves up in college? And I've always reviewed every single paper. So why would I stop? Right. I began to appreciate, oh, they it's not that they're starting to overparent in college. They've always overparented and they can't let go because the stakes just keep getting higher. Seven years into railing against this, giving speeches, writing op-eds, I come home for dinner one night with my own family. My son was 10. My daughter was eight. We were having chicken. I sit down next to 10-year-old Sawyer. I lean over his plate and begin cutting his meat. And that's when I knew I was part of the very problem I was railing against, that I am overparenting a 10-year-old. 10 is way too late to be cutting somebody's food. There are so many skills a human has to learn between cutting meat and go to college or go to the workplace or or join the army. And that's when I learned I am a part of the very problem I criticize, which made me super motivated to learn more about it. What is it? Why do we do it? Why is it harmful? How do we stop? And that's the void, those dual vantage points. Dean working with other people's kids, me overparenting my own kids. That's the dual vantage point embedded in my first book, How to Raise an Adult. And I've been trying to undo those patterns ever since. Was your husband's style similar to yours or how did he adjust when you were changing? You know, he's a really important person to mention. Dan Lithcott-Hames, my amazing life partner of 33 years, said to me when he was 19, when we were dating, if I ever have kids one day, I want to be home with them. 
And that was his plan, which was so unusual in the 1980s for a man to say that. And he made good on that promise. So after 12 short weeks of maternity leave in 99, which was all we were allowed then, um, I went back to work to my busy full-time job and Dan began working part-time and has for the last 22 years. My mother is also in our life. So my husband and mother were the primary caregivers. I showed up half a day a week. That was my flex schedule. Um, so Dan has been hugely influential in raising our children and He's got his own helicopter parenting tendencies. I don't want to speak for him. He's like around the corner, and I don't know if he's ever heard me say this, but, you know, he's very um, indulgent. He's very, um, he's conflict avoider, so he has a hard time kind of holding the line, and um, he's super kind and wonderful. He's very empathetic, and so he has all the sort of love and care and concern and support but both of us struggled with rules and boundaries. We struggled with saying no. We tried to make life easier for our kids instead of holding the line when we needed to and creating, you know, some clear rules and expectations. Yeah. So both of us were in it and both of us are motivated to try to change it. It's so funny because I actually just wrote yesterday about the fact that there's all these milestones that we talk about when we're parenting, you know the first steps and, you know, the first words and first day of school. But it's really the other milestones, like the first time your child is cutting their food by themselves or the first time that your child puts themselves to bed or you stop reading to your child at night. Like those are the milestones that actually can like really impact you and you don't even realize when they're happening. And it's it's something I just keep thinking about lately. Sam, let me point to the first steps because you've really hit on something that I think is an essential memory that if we can summon it, it can actually help us be better parents all the way through, okay? Parents often ask me, as you kind of have, when do we, like, where's the line and when do we start or when do we stop, you know, why do we start over parenting or when do we start giving them independence? And I say to that, why did you stop giving them independence? When they were learning to stand and then walk roughly age one, they failed at it. And we were not embarrassed and we did not micromanage. We didn't shout, get up, we walk in this family, right? Your brother walked sooner than you. We don't do that the way we do around everything else, academics, sports, friends, right? Instead, we clap. We're delighted our kid is learning to stand and walk. We know if I help them too much, they won't develop the leg strength. They won't develop the core strength. They won't develop the sense of balance. They won't be able to stand and walk. To overparent would be to get on your knees as your little one is taking their first tentative steps, to get on your knees behind them so that if they fall, they fall into you and you can prop them back up. To put your hands underneath their armpits and hold them up so if they fall, you can hold them up and then you nudge them forward and your partner's over there at the other end of the room clapping like, look, we're walking. That would be overparenting. And of course, it's absurd because we they weren't learning to walk if we did it that way. We were doing it for them. That is the visual I want everyone to have when you think about what doing too much for them is actually achieving. You're walking them to the other end of the room, but they are not learning to walk and you will forever have to prop them up because you are depriving them of learning how, okay? So we're supposed to teach them everything. To let them learn often means step away, make sure they're not going to fall on a sharp object, but they're going to fall because that's how they learn to pull themselves back up. It's how their brain learns. It's how their muscles get stronger. They literally have to go and do the work of life themselves in order to be capable. 
And for everything that's a practical skill, we're supposed to be teaching it. And there's a four-step method. There's a cute little video on my website that illustrates this. First, you do it for them. Second, you do it with them. Third, you watch them do it. Fourth, they can do it independently. Picture teaching a kid to cross the street. First, you do it for them. You are holding them on your shoulder. They're an infant. They don't have to do anything. You carry them across the street. Step two, you hold their hand. They're old enough to walk and hold your hand. You narrate out loud, hey, buddy, we're going to start practicing crossing the street today. It's going to take a while, but we're going to start today. You teach with your teaching voice about, hey, we stand this far from the curb and we're looking for cars. Want to make sure it's clear. We're going to look left and right and left. And and you it's don't do it when you're in a hurry, because if you're in a hurry, you're going to say, oh, God, I'm just going to scoop them up and carry them across the street. The point is, unless you intend to carry your 11-year-old across the street, you have to make time to teach all these things. You do step two enough times, you can go to this terrifying stage of step three, where you switch hands like or, or switch roles. You let go of your kid's hand. They're no longer going to dart out into the street. You know they've passed that stage. You say, hey, buddy, now we're going to stand here and you're going to decide, is it safe to cross? I'm going to listen to you narrate. And he says, okay, daddy, you know, I look left, right, left. And you say, slow down, buckaroo. We got to look carefully. So you're still teaching. You're there for the just in case. In case they step out too soon, you're still there teaching. And then step four is your kid can cross the street without your needing to be there. We have to get there around everything, crossing street, tying shoes, cutting food, making dinner, food on the stove, putting things in their own backpack, talking to, you know, clerks on the phone, advocating for themselves with a teacher or a coach. Everything can be taught according to that four-step method. And that's what good parenting looks like. Tell us about your experience going from law school to, you know, being a corporate lawyer and then suddenly becoming this Stanford administrator. How did you end up on that path? I went to law school because I fell in love with law as an undergraduate. I fell in love with law as a way to make the world better. And I wanted to be one of those lawyers who would do that. The trouble is, I can now tell you at 53, half a life ago in my mid-20s, I was so insecure as a young woman of color at my law school even though I had gone there to do public interest law, I was so insecure about what people thought of me and whether I was well-regarded that I decided I needed to go get a corporate law job to meet the applause and approval of society, broadly speaking, of white mainstream society. And so I took my law offer at Cooley Godward, this great firm in Silicon Valley, and became a, a corporate litigator. And I was uh, given a good mentor. I was given great opportunities. I was making great money. They liked me. They were mentoring me. All signs indicated that I might be very successful there. The trouble was I had this knot in my stomach every Sunday in the afternoon at the thought of going in because the work was not intrinsically the work I wanted to be doing. I was good at it and well-paid and all those other things and yet miserable. And I couldn't figure out why. Like, I, I thought I'd done everything right. Right schools, right career. Everybody says I'm successful. And that's when I learned that it's not about someone else's definition of the right job or the right career. I have to both be good at it and love it. And I did this exercise with myself to figure out, well, what are you good at? What do you love? I was miserable. And I did a brainstorming exercise that I explicate on the pages of my new book, Your Turn, in, in my chapter you know, stop pleasing others. They have no idea who you are. I'm trying to help readers do the work of figuring out this sweet spot. What are you good at? What do you love? That's the Venn diagram 
that leads to rewarding work. If you're just good at it and don't love it, you'll feel like a drone in your own life. If you just love it and you're not good at it, you're probably not going to make it into a career. It's going to be a hobby. So I did that work. And that work told me you're good at people. You love people. You like working with people. You like helping people solve their problems. People trust you. Maybe I can get work with people. Even though I was trying to be this analytical left brain person, la, 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 I am that person. But I'm also very much a people person. And I hadn't chosen well out of law school. I should have gone into the public interest work I wanted. But by then, I felt like a sellout. I was tired of law and of arguing. And I went in the direction of people. And that led me back to academia where I could work with young people, help them try to help them make better choices in their life earlier than I had. So that was the the path. It took me three years from that night of misery doing that exercise three years to actually make the leap. I tried and failed three times to get work in higher ed administration. I kept being denied because I was a lawyer. I didn't have the the right graduate degree. And then finally, I caught a lucky break at Stanford Law School where they valued my law degree. And I filled in for somebody's maternity leave and she ended up not coming back and they hired me and that led to a 14-year career. It was a huge risk, a huge leap but I was so miserable, I decided to fill in for someone's maternity leave to test drive a new career. And to my delight, I loved it. And to my delight, they wanted me full time. What was it like to take that financial risk? I mean, you were walking away from a high paying job into a temporary position and you're the primary breadwinner. Yes, Amy, thank you for asking that question. Here's what I said. I went to my boss. I was in-house at Intel at the time. And I said to my boss at Intel, I have an opportunity to test drive a new career. I need a 10-week leave. I'm going to go fill in for somebody's maternity leave. Will you hold my job? That's how miserable I was. I was able to just put it out there. Because if she said no, I would have said, see ya. But I thought, let me try to hold my job. She looked at me, and to her credit, she said, for your sake, I hope you love it, because I want you to be happy. For my sake, I hope you don't, because you're one of my top people. I will hold your job. So off I went to a job that was paying me, I think, two-thirds of what I was earning as a lawyer. And I took that job, and it was enough money. I wasn't, you know, going to get rich uh, in that job, but it was plenty. So I learned you can do a whole lot more with less when you're intrinsically motivated to do the work. The work provides some of its own rewards. That helps fill you up in ways that no amount of money can. And then when the woman didn't come back from maternity leave and the dean called me and said, I want to hire you permanently, I said, I want to work with you, but you're going to have to pay me more because I had leverage at that point. And I negotiated for a significant increase, not just for me, but for everybody because they needed to do a salary review. And my hire was an opportunity to do that. So the lesson there is, right, You we have leverage and we have power when we are valued And we've got that offer. That is the moment to say, heck, yeah, I want to be here. But guess what? These numbers, you know, have to move higher. And you can walk away from a job when you're miserable. And often we are our own best advocate when we've reached that point of misery. I talked to a friend of mine who has a podcast, Edit Your Life, Christine Coe. She said, I finally left Wall Street when my hair was falling out because I could show people clumps of my hair and say, see, see, I'm miserable. See, I don't want to do this anymore. It was like she needed the evidence of her hair falling out to justify, I want to do different work. And I think my work is about trying to help people make the leap before their hair is falling out or before their blood pressure is high or before their body is screaming at them, stop, can we please stop doing this? We're miserable. Can we 
find a way to give ourselves permission to hear that inner voice that's saying, hey, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a wilderness guide. I want to be a chef. I want to try to write novels. Can we give ourselves permission to hear that voice beckoning for our attention within our psyche? Can we listen to that voice before our bodies start to break down? I think the answer is yes. One of the most uncomfortable parts of your book was the part on feedback. When you shared negative feedback you had received in your job, and it was, it was, I was cringing reading it because it was so difficult to read. I'm sure it was just as difficult or more difficult to receive. But the way you shared that and what you did with it really struck me. Can you talk a little bit about feedback? Do you mean the story where my friend took me out to lunch and said everybody said I was a ladder climber? Yeah. So here I was um, about six years into a 14-year career as an administrator, a senior administrator at Stanford. I had created the dean of freshman position, a position I would go on to hold for 10 years. This was in year maybe one and a half or two. I thought I was doing a great job. The students seem to value that there's an office carved out just for first years. The parents of those students, of course, since they're all helicopter parents, valued it. Um, the Alumni Association valued it, the Office of Development, because it looked like we were creating some programs and ways of being around ritual that would foment belonging, which would help the students thrive, but also be good for the university in the long term. So there were all kinds of uh, bits of evidence that, hey, this is working. This is good. This is useful. Win-win. A colleague took me out to lunch and said, you know, I, I need to tell you this, but people are saying you're a ladder climber who doesn't care who she steps on on the way to the top. They're saying it's like you've sat down on the park bench and bumped someone else off. And so um, I was just trying not to cry. Like I thought, here I'm now in my dream job after all those years of misery and I'm doing it. I'm doing the job I want to do. And now my colleagues are saying these things. And I was ashamed and embarrassed and just biting my lip and trying not to cry and um, I began to lean into it and, and take an interest in what was I being told. I'm being told you don't collaborate, you don't listen to other people, you don't care about other people. So I said, fine, I'll go and listen to other people. And I set up meetings and I would, you know, like, I have these great ideas, but fine, I'll go talk to other people about my great ideas instead of just trying to all on my own do my implement my great ideas. I mean, it was such a lone actor. I came out of litigation where it was, you know, have the right idea, prove it, convince. It wasn't a collaborative environment. Now academia was, and I was not collaborating. So I said, fine, I'll go and collaborate. You know, I'll even go to other people's offices to demonstrate respect, you know, and I'll convince some of my great idea while I'm in their office. Well, ha ha he he, I slowly, actually, I quickly learned that as I began to share ideas with people, be a little bit curious about their thoughts, be a little bit humble about their expertise and years of experience. Oh, guess what? They have great ideas. They can add their idea to the mix, make my idea a better one. Maybe we abandon my idea because their idea is even better. And I became someone who was forced to collaborate out of this sort of shame of, oh, my God, everyone hates me, to, oh, wow, there's such benefit in collaborating. This is amazing. And that then became my way of being. And it was terrible in the moment. But, boy, if I'd never gotten that feedback, I never would have become the administrator I ultimately became, who was, you know, fairly highly respected and admired in part because of my, um, you know, interest in, you know, demonstrated ability to collaborate well. What would you say the key to being a great teenage parent is? I'm not in a room where I have the books that I want to show you, but I do rely heavily on other people's work. Um, one is The Self-Driven Child by Ned Johnson and Bill Stixrud. 
One is Hunt Gather Parent by Michaeline Duclef. These are all books that help situate us in the right space around our kids, teens and all kids, frankly, because not a lot change who they are changes, but how we show up with them shouldn't really. Okay. We're trying to get our kids to care about their own lives and their own selves. If we overcare, they won't. If we constantly micromanage or nag or remind, they won't. They'll stop caring. We have to remove ourselves significantly. We have to step to the side so that they can show up in their own life. So I'm going to tell you two quick stories. Okay. One from a mom who called me and said, Julie, I figured it out. I figured out the appropriate distance I'm supposed to have with my kids. I have two sons. My 17-year-old son is mine biologically. My 15-year-old son is adopted. My 17-year-old son, sadly, is in a therapeutic boarding school because things kind of went south. My 15-year-old is doing great. She said, my 17-year-old called me for family therapy from therapeutic boarding school and finally summoned the courage to say to me, mom, every time you nag, remind, have you done this? When are you going to do this? Don't forget to do this. It makes me think you don't think I can or that I ever will. And then I think the psychiatrist said, and maybe that has something to do with your rebellion because that's the only way you have agency in your life is to rebel against your frequently over-involved parents. Okay. She said to me, Julie, I got it. My biological son carries my DNA. I feel responsible for the grades he gets and the school he goes to and his behavior because he's mine biologically. With my adopted son, I don't love him any less. I love him the same. I just don't feel that his outcomes reflect on me. She came to realize she has the better relationship with her adopted kid because she's not managing him like a freaking dog. Okay? So that's how this parent saw the difference. Okay? Here's how it applies to all of us. We're supposed to treat our kid the way we're probably already treating our nieces and nephews and best friend's kids. For example, outside of COVID, you go over to your best friend's house on a Friday afternoon their kid comes home from high school, slams the door, throws the backpack down and says, well, I guess I just failed chemistry. You say, oh, no, poor thing. Are you all right? Come here. Do you want some like you love you connect around the feeling they're having? The actual parent is going, what do you mean you failed chemistry? We studied hard, didn't we? Chemistry matters. What are you talking about? They're all in it like they're the one taking the chemistry class, which is the better response. The first one. Love, connection, care, not acting like it's yours, not evincing, I don't trust that you can handle this. Okay, so what your kid wants is to be listened to. And believe me, I'm not pointing my finger at you. I am such a fixer, Sam. Okay, my daughter and I have this dynamic. She's the 19-year-old. She's a sophomore, just finished her sophomore year in college. Okay, when she called me at the start of sophomore year during a pandemic where she's living off campus 3,000 miles away from home, and she says, it's the second week of school. I have to register this used scooter that I bought with the DMV. I'm trying to hook up my internet. My landlord is mad at me about this. And I have a paper due. And she was freaking out. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Okay, you don't need to register the scooter. Put that. She's like, mom, stop. I know that. I know how to organize things. I'm just, I just want you to listen. Okay. And I've, I've had to take a deep breath and say, I'm so sorry. I got it. I got it. I want to help. I want to fix. I want to freaking fly out there and deal with everything. That undermines our kids. It makes them feel we think they're incapable. Just like doing their homework in the fourth grade or the eighth grade does. It's us telling them, I don't think you can be successful in this grade without me doing your work. We have to pull back. They need empathy and empowerment. 
I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Let me give you a hug. How can I help? Let me listen. You know, and you can say, do you just want to be listened to? Because I'm here for that. If you want suggestions, I'm here for that too. Let me know. You're empowering them to tell you what they need. And then you can signal, I know this is hard. I know you'll figure it out. I'm always here if you need advice and guidance. And then walk away because it's their life. If they're drowning in the ocean, go get them. If they're about to walk into traffic, go get them. Okay, those are the dangers. That's the level of danger where we're supposed to intervene and handle it and supersede and all of that. But most of the rest of life is life happening and they need to experience it happening because that's how they learn and get more confident. My overparented 21-year-old son, he is slowly starting after a downward spiral with anxiety, which was in part fomented by our constantly handling and reminding every little thing that teaches them, oh my gosh, my parents are so afraid I can't. They're handling every little thing for me. We're supposed to be doing the opposite. We are repatterning with that kid and that he is blossoming. Now the confidence is coming as he does more and more and more for himself. It brings tears to my eyes to see him infused with the delight he had when he was five before we started handling every little thing. I hope some of those stories help. And now for a quick break. Tell us about how you came up with your last name. I was Julie Lithcott. Dan was Dan Hames. We were engaged in 1990. And um, I knew as a black and biracial person what it was like when strangers didn't know that a parent was mine. A lot of times, even though I look a lot like my white mother, growing up in the Midwest, often people didn't realize that she was my mother or I was her child. And so I was really worried about my kids not having the same last name as me, not knowing my husband's white and Jewish. And I wanted my kids to have my last name and their dad's last name. Being a multiracial family, you have no idea what your kids are going to look like in terms of skin color and other presentations of ethnicity. And so we decided we needed to have the same last name. And I wasn't ready to give up Lifcott, but was happy to take on Hames. And I had found a partner who was happy to take my name as well. I mean, it speaks to the uniqueness of Dan in that moment in the 80s and into the early 90s. Um, So it's a combination of our two last names, and we both bear it, and our two children do as well. What characteristics do you look for in your friends? To me, friendship, deep friendship, um, that small set of people who we can count on, you could call in the middle of the night. These are people who know my shit, and I know their shit, and we love each other anyway. We've gone deep with one another. We've had that tough work experience that bonded us. We've had that tough childhood or adolescent or young adulthood experience that bonded us. So there's a deep knowing into the crevices of our life. I would say to you at the age of 53, I would rather reconnect and deepen with somebody who already knows me than to try to make a new friend simply because of the amount of time that's required to really be in a place of deep friendship. So it's it's time commitment. It's a deep knowing into the crevices. It's rare. I mean, it's not rare. We, we often don't have many is what I mean by it's rare. But friends are essential for our wellness. Research says this time and time again. So when we are busy with kids and with work. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. We have to still make time for that small set of people who are our truest friends, because that's what contributes to our longevity in the long run. Deep, abiding friendships and a very strong a primary relationship if we have one. What is next for you? Believe it or not, a mother-daughter memoir. My mother, my amazing mother, whom I alluded to earlier, and I and my husband and kids have lived in the same house now for 20 plus years. And it's been wonderful in obvious ways. Childcare, free childcare. She also liked to do laundry and ironing, but it's been hell as well. And so we envision, and now that we're on the other side of it, we've kind of learned the lessons. We envision a memoir co-written. My mother writes a chapter, I write a chapter, and we alternate all the way through about who we were before we decided to live in this situation together, 
the years when it was hellish and awful and why for each person, never trying to agree on the page or write together about the same incident. No, no, no. She's going to tell what she went through. I'm going to tell what I did and so on. And then the third part is kind of who we became as we've done the work to undo those patterns. We now have a daily coffee thanks to the pandemic. And that's been a way for us to get to know one another as women and as people. And so we are on the other side of the of the hellish time. And we think we can write that memoir to be of service to people who find themselves living with their grown child or with their parent as a grown up. Um, so many of us find ourselves in that circumstance due to finances, you know, other circumstances or choice. And it comes with upsides and downsides. And we think our journey can help others on their journey. Well, we'll start the lightning round. What book are you reading now? Oh, my goodness. I'm reading um, Letters to My White Male Friends. It's a brand new book that is out. I'm actually going to be in conversation with the author very soon at Politics and Prose in D.C. Um, The author is Dax Devlin Ross. Letters to My White Male Friends. Who leaves you starstruck? Oprah Winfrey is the first person that comes to mind. Maybe not an original answer, but I love who she is. I love how she became through so much adversity. She became probably one of the top three most trusted voices on the planet in our lifetime. I love how she cares for humans so deeply and seems to speak from the ages and for the ancestors and for our great-great-grandchildren. There is a wholeness to her perspective and a tenderness with which she speaks that I just find magical. What is your morning routine? I get up every morning at about 6.45. I roll over to my phone, which is on the bedside table. I know it's not supposed to be, but truth, it is. I check my email and social media because my my colleagues, my the people who publish me, the people who schedule me, book me are on the East Coast. Their day has started, so I have to sort of wake up and deal with what's already come in. I then try to work out on my Peloton. I sometimes do, sometimes don't. I have an eight o'clock coffee with my mother. That happens for an hour. She has an attached cottage now. So I go over there to her cottage. We have coffee together and we chat. And then I get myself ready. So I usually don't take my first meeting or call until 10, which I realize is a very privileged thing. That said, I'm often you know, working into the evening hours to get it all done. I'm typically working about six days a week right now. Things are really busy. I do like to do the New York Times crossword. I do that at night, but it is part of my routine. My husband and I compete. He doesn't realize we're competing. I mean, that is to say he's not competitive, but I am. And I was able to tell him recently to be loved in my family growing up was to win, win at the crossword, win at poker, win at anything. I felt loved when I won. And so I realized that my competitiveness comes in part from a longing for love. So he said to me, so if I beat you with the crossword, which he usually does, If I tell you I love you after I say I'm done, will that be enough? And I looked at him and I said, yes, it will. So now whenever he beats me at the New York Times crossword, he's like, okay, I'm done. I love you. And I feel it. And it's been just the most amazing, insightful, tiny gift. All right. With that, Lou Burns. What about the parents like me who are like like not full-time parents who struggle with the uh, idea of being a parent but also want to be like a friend and, you know, learning how to say no. And like, do you have advice for, for us? Cause I'm, I'm, what I'm dealing with is a 12 year old girl who loves dance. Uh, she's very smart, very inquisitive, you know, but things like telling her to like, just do the dishes. I'm like, no, I didn't do that. You know, like, what is that? My mama told me to do the dishes. She didn't have to tell me. She just thought, looked at the dishes and I did the dishes, but it was a different time. You know, it's obviously, obviously a different circumstance. 
two things, and they're both embedded in your beautiful question, Lou. I'm so glad your 12-year-old daughter has you. Um, what she needs from you, as all children need from all parents, is unconditional love. She needs to be cherished for who she is, not because of how smart she is or how amazing she is at dance, but because she exists. And you show her that. We all show our kids that. By looking them in the eye, when she comes to your house for the weekend or you pick her up, you look her in the eye and you let love fill your face. You say, baby, so good to see you. How are you? You're asking, how are you? Not how did school go? How did dance? I don't know. Just how are you? I'm so glad to see you. So glad to spend the weekend with you. It's just a cherishing. And you show it with your body language, but also your actual language. Okay. We all want this, by the way. Think of how that would make you feel if you showed up at someone's house and they're just like, so good to see you. Welcome. Come in. Can I make you something to drink? Sit down. Get comfortable. How are you? Okay. That is a way to signal that you love her as she is. Then you do want to delight in the things that matter to her. So you lean in after she's settled in a bit. Say, when you're ready, I would love an update on dance, on school. If there's anyone important in your life that I need to know about it, I'm here ready to listen. You know, your opening space without asking leading questions or prying, that's demonstrating further unconditional love and respect. And then the chores are essential too. And you're going to love my TED Talk because it, it comes down to love and chores as the two most important things. We have to teach our kids how to work. We have to teach them to be accountable and responsible or else they will flounder like veal. They will be nothing. They will be slaughtered in the workplace. Chores are how they learn a work ethic. Chores are how they learn there are things that have to be done even if I don't want to. They must learn that in our homes or else they will fall apart out in the real world. So it is not cruel to ask her to do chores. You say, we all got to participate in making this house run here. That You can talk about which chores. She doesn't have to do the ones she absolutely hates. Maybe you can have a conversation about, look, chores need to be done. But I don't mean for it to be torture. Is there something you'd rather do than the dishes? Would you rather pick up a, a duster and do the entire house? Would you rather vacuum? Like, you might have a set of things, give her some choice, but create the expectation that, yep, chores get must be done. We all do chores, then we can all relax a little bit. Inviting our kids to do the work of family life gives them effectively a family membership card that makes them feel, metaphorically, a family membership card that makes them feel a sense of belonging. They're more likely to participate and contribute, more likely to be mentally well and have the confidence and competence that comes from the skills they're being taught. So making them do chores are, is a way of showing love in a way. Um, so that's my answer. I hope it's useful. And I'm really, really glad you asked. Amy, I have to admit, I am a little obsessed with Julie and her advice. And as you know, because we've talked about this so much, I'm obsessed with parenting and obsessed with always improving my parenting. And my teens remind me every day of how wrong I am or what I'm doing wrong, I should say. And I feel like Julie's given me a new toolkit. She has a lot of advice, that's for sure. I think I know you're obsessed with parenting. I love being a parent, but I'm less obsessed with the tactics of it. However, I learned a ton, which I think is really important. She thinks there's just a lot of space for kids to grow and be, and that we should kind of step back in a lot of ways. And interestingly for me, Sam, that was sort of validating because sometimes I wonder, like, my kids are really little, but like, am I involved enough? Do I care enough? You know, my second child is slower to writing and reading than my first child. 
And I'm kind of like, it'll happen. I agree with that with reading. Like I, I never, ever push my kids to read because I feel, feel like kids are now pushed too early to read and they shouldn't know how to read until first grade anyway, technically. And that's how it used to be. But you know what else I really loved is that I felt like Julie put a lot of things in perspective. So I remember going into my daughter's, I think it was like her fifth grade classroom, and we were talking about homework. And I proudly raised my hand, probably like self-righteously, and was like, I've never helped with homework. And then this other mom raised her hand and said that every night she checks her kid's homework to make sure it's correct. And I was like waiting for the teacher to be all over that parent about how ridiculous that was. And instead she's like, well, that's a really good thing to do. And I was like, what holy hell are we in right now? Like, why are parents checking homework? Isn't that the whole point of having a teacher? Isn't that the point of knowing what your child did wrong and right? Like, where's the growth? And why are we encouraging parents to helicopter? And I think that, you know, in my home, we really are the opposite of helicopter parents. However, I think the part that we do do wrong is maybe put too much emphasis on the grades or too much emphasis on the outcome and not enough on the process. You know, I think that's a really fair point. And part of it is like there's joy in the process, right? If we don't think about the outcome, like there's just a lot of joy to simple things and simple days with the kids. And if we're constantly focused on what the outcome is, I think we can miss a lot of that joy. And that question, that my favorite question, what lights you up? Your job in high school is to figure out what lights you up. And that is just, that is gold. Oh, I think it's so it's so much gold. You know, at the end of this, Sam, we both said to each other, we could have talked to Julie for about eight more hours. So maybe we can get her to come back on because I think we should. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co, and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. Hey, Julie, do you use anything in your hair to make it so curly? You know, Lou, bless you. I'm this biracial black kid who didn't know what to do with my hair for so much of my life. Just like my daughter. Right. Which meant there weren't products. Yes. No, I have great products. Um, Miss Jessie's is great um, hair products for um, multiracial folks. Um, The whole slew of things, but they even have a Miss Jessie's multiracial curls. My son uses that. Um, My hair has really thinned a lot. Uh, Once I started loving it, I didn't realize it was going to leave me. So it used to be like big, like umbrella twists. So I'm sad that I'm losing it. Um, Miss Jessie's is great. Um, um, actually, if you email me, I, I have a bunch of different brands. So just email me and I'll I'll pop back just a couple that she could try. Mix Chicks is also good. Um, it's a it's a brand. Um, uh, Bumble and Bumble has some good stuff, although they may have just dis- I buy in bulk. So I often have stuff that they've now discontinued. Um, but Bumble and Bumble um, calming cream or defining cream is good, but basically it's the hair when wet, it's got to be combed through with fingers raked through or really wide tooth comb, never brush when wet. And then a lot of leave-in, you know, towel dry, comb through with a wide tooth comb. And then a lot of leave-in conditioner that like fills the palm, depending on how much hair she has. And then just leave-in conditioner and then you let it set. You don't touch it. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 